When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The UK now has its third prime minister in three months. It's fifth in just six years. Good morning. I've just been to Buckingham Palace and accepted His Majesty the King's invitation to form a government in his name. But whilst Rishi Sunak is calling for a period of unity and stability, the polls show a majority of voters want him to call an early general election and they want the Conservatives to lose. It does feel as if the Tory party, after 12 years, needs a period in opposition. It needs to go off and rewild itself gently. She's asking me questions because we're a government in waiting and they're an opposition in waiting. The Labour Party says it's poised to take over. It's time for a government that is on your side. That government is a Labour government. And be in no doubt, conference, that government is on its way. But after 12 years in the shadows, Labour only has a few figures left who have experience of serving in Cabinet and who understand the machinery of government. When the next election comes, will they be in a position to hit the ground running? Polling that's been done about Keir Starmer says that people find him boring, dull, they don't know what he stands for, they don't believe him. I'm talking to Tony Blair, I'm talking to Gordon Brown, I'm talking to lots of people. I'm particularly keen to talk to people who have won elections. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, is Labour ready for power? My name's Gabriel Pogrand. I'm the Whitehall editor at The Sunday Times. Gabriel is one of our long-term Labour watchers and the co-author of a book about the party's tumultuous years under Jeremy Corbyn. He's been following the way Labour has been responding to its newfound popularity in the polls. Everything that Starmer's done while leader of her and then His Majesty's loyal opposition has been designed to appeal to people on the ground that Labour could actually run the country. That prospect seems tantalisingly close to people in and around the Labour Party right now. They have been very concretely preparing 
for government. For instance, over the last few weeks, members of the Shadow Cabinet have been attending these sort of preparatory sessions at the Institute for Government where they literally learn about the stuff of government. I mean, the byproduct of the Conservative Party's success at the ballot box has been that the party has this dearth of experience. There's only, I believe, two shadow ministers who've served as secretaries of state, that being Yvette Cooper and Ed Miliband, of course. And there's been a handful of people who served as junior ministers. But there aren't many people that can say, I've gotten into the ministerial Jaguar, I've opened the battered and beaten red box, I've had my feet under the table in a Whitehall department. There's this genuine effort underway right now to drill the Shadow Cabinet in the art of government. I mean, it's such an intriguing idea. How do you do that? What do these classes at the Institute of Government look like? I mean, are they literally going back to school? It's left going back to school and sort of going to school for the first time for most of them. I mean, even Starmer himself, he ran a public body in the form of the Crown Prosecution Service, but has never been on the other side of the table. So there are basically three chunks within these sessions. I mean, I doffed my cap to my colleague Henry Zeffman, who revealed this in the Times last week. So there's one on the kind of role of cabinet ministers, another on the transition into government, and then a third and final section on scrutiny and and spending. Um, I do remember actually from my time reporting on the Labour Party under Corbyn that this was something they did then too. We are no longer just an opposition. We are a party preparing to go into government. But I think part of it was just the kind of ABC of how one actually goes through a red box and what decision-making at the apex of government involves. Corbyn, he was obviously had his kind of abiding interest in his constituency and had a bit of a scatterbrain, agreed with the last person he'd spoken to. And the aim of these sessions was basically to say, well, you know, this is when you'll have to look at your red box. You know, you'll have to look at it at these times. You'll have to make decisions at these points. And I think the IFG, you know, are able to actually take shadow ministers through a kind of mock or model process of making decisions on a day-to-day basis. If you're the Home Secretary, that might mean signing off on an arrest warrant or a surveillance order. If you're in number 10, it might be making a kind of combination of day-to-day political decisions as well as big-picture macroeconomic and investment calls. It's the sort of thing which you just simply can't practice for, really, until you're doing mm. it. But you can at least be fortified with the wisdom of people who've done it before. And I do think, when you look at the polls right now, that it wouldn't be wise for Labour not to be doing this at this moment. What sort of reaction have you been hearing from Labour MPs while the Liz Truss unravelling has taken place over the last few weeks? Obviously, the numbers emanating from the pollsters are absolutely ridiculous. Labour today in a poll have a 36-point lead. That is the biggest lead any party has had since 1997. If it actually happened, there would only be 22 Tory MPs left. There's no number of superlatives that can do justice to some of what we're witnessing at this moment in time. Labour Party having these definitive leads over the Conservatives on what for so many years were bread and butter Tory issues, things like the stewardship of the economy. I even saw one YouGov tracker that said that Labour was trusted to manage Brexit more effectively than the Conservatives. So it is bewildering and surreal to see numbers like this. At the same time, 
There's no presumptuousness within the Labour Party, or at least not that I detect. But also, we've got a long way to go until the next general election. It could be as late as 2024. The macroeconomic conditions are likely to change. You know, who could predict what the situation in Ukraine will look and feel like? So all of this is a long way of saying just because Labour's doing well right now does not mean Keir Starmer is jumping up and down, giddy with glee. And he always conspicuously tries to not enjoy these moments of Tory misfortune. I mean, do you think privately, you know, behind closed doors, do you think they are rejoicing a bit or or do you think there's a bit of fear? It might all happen sooner than they're expecting. You you can't ignore the evidence at at this moment in time, which is emphatic. I mean, it looks like there will be a Labour government sooner rather than later. But I think that the party never unburdens itself too openly or gets too giddy or excited about these things. Also, that cautiousness might betray another dimension to this, which is that, you know, the party is likely, if it does win the next general election, to inherit a really complicated and politically difficult economic situation. Their primary mandate will be to tame inflation and restore public finances. That's not the sort of thing you dream about growing up when you think, oh, I want to be a Labour politician. I'd really love to be the voice of fiscal rectitude and making tough decisions. But that is, frankly, the first item in their entry. And the person who a lot of this will come down to is Rachel Reeves, who you've just been interviewing. If we are really on the brink of a Labour government in the next year or two, to understand how it might function, we really need to understand the key characters who, as you say, some of them are untested and we haven't seen that much of them in public life until now and until sort of everything's been unravelling. But Rachel Reeves is certainly one of those characters. Tell us a bit about her. Reeves is Starmer's second shadow chancellor in as many years and listeners may struggle to recall the identity of Starmer's first prospective appointee in number 11. That was Annalise Dodds. That appointment kind of represented this period in Starmer's leadership where he was genuinely trying to be the candidate of the soft left. He had this interim shadow cabinet of people who you know, weren't hardcore Blairites or hardcore lefties, but were somewhere in between. The two of them were never particularly personally close. I don't think they were that ideologically aligned either. Starmer has a much tighter relationship with Reeves, and I think it's fair to say that she's probably more suited to the role as well. I mean, I only learned recently that in this era in which guilt and bonds and interest rates are at the centre of public discourse, and not to mention the role of the Bank of England, that Reeves had started her career at the bank under a a little-known economist who's now the governor of the Bank of England. I'm Rachel Reeves. I'm Labour's parliamentary candidate in Leeds West and I currently work for a bank. I guess I am one of the few people that when I enter politics will be doing a more popular job than what I'm doing currently. (laughs) But I remember in the 87 election... So, um, you know, she is very practised in both kind of central banking world, but also she did work experience in Gordon Brown's treasury shortly after Brown had granted independence to the bank. So she's absolutely rooted in many of the kind of core economic concepts and conversations being had right now. And on an ideological level, I mean, she massively personifies Starmer's movement towards people very much aligned with the moderate wing of the party. So Reeves was quite unusual. She refused to serve in Corbyn's shadow cabinet, which very few people, Keir Starmer himself included, 
can say they did, but she you know, just simply wouldn't touch that project because she felt it was so antithetical to all that she represented. Reeves is a sort of keen chess player. You could say that I was quite a wise strategic gambit in retrospect because, you know, Starmer, one of his vulnerabilities at the dispatch box has been this idea that, oh, he was willing to put Corbyn in number 10 and all this, whereas, you know, Reeves spent that period on the Treasury Select Committee fighting for the survival of what she regarded as being kind of true Labour values. And does her antipathy for Jeremy Corbyn, does it tell us something about her economics? Because, you know, obviously she's been very critical of trussonomics and the car crash in the markets that we've watched. This statement is an admission of 12 years of economic failure. And now here we are, one last throw of the dice. Do we know where her instincts would be? The number one agenda is conveying to the public that they can trust Labour, that Labour is a genuinely safe pair of hands in government. I don't think that Starmer's first term, and you know we're getting presumptuous now, but let's say it happens, you know, is not going to be defined by radicalism. You know, her absolute core goal is balancing the books. We're back to the world in which the kind of household metaphor for public finances is trotted out all the time. Sort of safety first is basically the primary impression she wants to imprint upon the public. Does that mean we can expect a version of austerity again? Well, first thing to say is this is not 1970s in terms of there being loads of things that the government can straightforwardly privatise. It's not 2010 um, in terms of there being loads of the after effects of new Labour government, you know, quite large state spending. There's a very different picture right now. Post-COVID public services, obviously suffering. The NHS backlog is a massive public health and political issue. The Labour response to this would be to say, we couldn't even return to austerity, even if that was what we wanted, and it isn't. But we couldn't do it because, you know, the public services simply couldn't withstand it. And the basic Labour position, I think, is introducing efficiencies, but not nearly as deep or as broad as those that the Conservatives would introduce. I mean, I've we have asked Labour, actually, well, what would they ring-fence then? What are the things that a fiscally prudent Labour government would nevertheless not go near, to which most of the time you'll get the response, well, you'll see in our manifesto in due course. And do you think she's capable of convincing the markets that she'd be a steady hand, that she'd be a figure they can trust? So it's really interesting. Labour's had a really vexed relationship with business over the last decade. And for so many years, the Conservatives were just in their marrow, the party of business. It was just a fact of life. I mean, there's been a massive kind of mutual estrangement between the party and the business world. Obviously, among a lot of businesses, Brexit was toxic issue and poses ongoing supply chain and labour force problems. But also Johnson's alleged remarks business. There are lots of examples of where the party's kind of policies, but also its pronouncements, you know, alienated the business community. Should we be saluting any politician who can make a Monday morning speech to a business community so unforgettable? Yesterday I went, uh, as, as we all must, uh, uh, to, to Peppa Pig World. I don't know if you've been to Peppa Pig World. Who's been to, how's anyone who's been to Peppa Pig World? Not enough. 
And then, um, you know, I, I don't think I need to remind people of the events of the last fortnight. And that has just compounded this perception that the Conservatives, rather than being kind of pragmatic, become more ideological. And the markets have obviously responded accordingly. But you know, we've learned that, you know, in parallel, Labour is getting a, a real hearing from business. And, you know, we always hear a lot about a kind of prawn cocktail offensive of shadow chances going out into the city and having tea and sarnies or whatever your choice delicacy is with grandees in the city. In this instance, though, there are people coming into Parliament to meet Reeves herself. So Mark Tucker, the chairman of HSBC, Alison Rose, who's chief executive of NatWest. Labour's also got this big event in Canary Wharf coming up in December, a big business conference being hosted by Reeves. Canary Wharf, a lot of location or a postcode that you'd associate no. with the Labour Party historically. But that is the topsy-turvy world that we're in right now. Coming up, could Angela Rayner prove a thorn in Keir Starmer's side? And how likely is an early general election? That's after a quick word from a colleague. I'm Mehreen Khan, economics editor at The Times. My job involves covering an extraordinary period for the global and UK economy, where central banks are fighting against runaway inflation, the pandemic and a war in Europe. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Gabriel, one of the other big characters in a future Labour government, if it does happen would presumably be Angela Rayner. Again, untested in that she hasn't been in government before, she hasn't been anywhere near Cabinet. What do we know about her? She seems a very different character from Rachel Reeves. I think that is more than fair statement. <laughs> um, I, I, You know, Angela Rayner, her and Reeves are kind of chalk and cheese. 
So Raynor's, for those who need to be reminded, is Starmer's uh, deputy leader and in principle would become his deputy prime minister or that and another ministerial role. My colleague Oli Shah, our associate editor who has impeccable contacts in the city, says that you know, there's a bit of squeamishness about Rayner and that is because she is, frankly, further to the left and also I don't think her life story or her political philosophy are about appeasing the business world per se. She's much more a product of the union movement. She, controversially, was recorded referring to the Tories as scum at last year's party conference. Cannot get any worse than a bunch of scum, homophobic, racist, misogynistic... Angela uh, said those words. We have different approaches to how we get our messages across. It's not language that I would have used. She was a very loyal shadow minister to Jeremy Corbyn, but part of their chemistry and part of their alliance is about letting Rayner speak to the base and G up the troops, and people feel like she's there as a kind of socialist or left-wing anchor. You know, if Keir Starmer did something wrong, I'd think nothing of calling him out on it, let me tell you. But his core principles and what motivates him is, is, is tremendous. I, I have nothing but respect for him. How much of an influence will she have? I did hear from a senior person in the Labour Party that something that she shouldn't be appointed a deputy prime minister and that that will be conveyed or it is being conveyed to Starmer. But at the same time, I think the answer ultimately is just we, we don't know right now. Deputy PM it can be a poison chalice. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. It's not a role or an office. Often it will be coupled with another kind of freestanding ministerial brief. There was this botched reshuffle that happened last year he told Angela Rayner he was removing her as party chairman in charge of elections. But it took until last night to find out that she was, in fact, uh, doing another job. In fact, rather a lot of jobs. Deputy Leader, Shadow First Secretary of State, Shadow Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster and Shadow Secretary of State for the Future of Work, Angela Rayner. Yes, that's Angela Rayner's new uh, full job title. That was followed with the sacking of one of Angela Rayner's closest aides and I think for you know some people that did embody the fact that she's you know ultimately willing to be supportive of Starmer in far more than being there as a fifth column you know agitating for the return of Corbynomics or being a voice for the unions and everything that she does. I think that um, you there know, will, will be people who despite having certain reservations might satisfy themselves with the view that Starmer and Reeves are clearly going to be the author of any manifesto and any programme for government. Talk us through some of the other characters we're likely to see in a future Labour government, if it happens, particularly the few who do actually have experience of government in the past. We were saying that Miliband was one of the two people alongside Yvette Cooper who'd served as a uh, Secretary of State in the past. David Lammy, John Healy, Pat McFadden and Sir Alan Campbell, they all held junior ministerial posts in new Labour governments. There is a degree of experience, but um, obviously everybody else is kind of a, a neophyte. And in addition to these classes with the Institute for Government, which is basically made up of academics and civil servants who know Whitehall backwards, are they also getting advice from 
the veterans, effectively. We sort of we keep hearing of former ministers being brought back into the fold, people who've left politics suddenly making a reappearance. Well, I mean, I think if you look at Starmer's office, I mean, it is populated or has been populated by alumni of the new Labour era. Deborah Mattinson is Starmer's big strategist. She's a pollster. She worked in Gordon Brown's number 10, was a veteran of the party's days in government. You're writing a book on Labour's red wall and the crumbling of it, that the Labour Party has gone from being the party of a pint and a pie to quinoa. What yes. do you mean exactly? Yes. I, I mean, it sounds jokey, but it, actually there's a very serious point underlying that because people look at a political party and they ask, is this a party for me? Sam White only recently departed Starmer's office on good terms as his chief of staff, worked in, in the Treasury during Alistair Darling. So in terms of his actual operation, there are a lot of people that have experience at the highest heights of politics. But then Starmer, you know, I understand is in relatively routine contact with Gordon Brown and Tony Blair. And then Peter Bandelson, I mean, is... Uh, it's all the old guard. It's all the old guard. I mean, it's hard nowadays to escape their shadow. It was Liz Truss who very memorably, very recently said, channelling uh, Mandelson himself, I'm a fighter and not a quitter, inextricably linking herself to the Prince of Darkness in so doing. But really, I mean, Mandelson is bringing to bear, obviously, on the Starmer Project far more. And a lot of people in Starmer's office have been kind of mentored by him or at least have fallen into his orbit or part of the party. So what Starmer's tries to do is make a virtue of of Labour's sort of great leaders, past and, uh, and, and indeed present, and kind of, in a way that the Conservative Party, despite its incoherence over the last century ideologically, always manages to create a kind of arc or narrative about what it's done and what it is. Um, Starmer now is also trying to present himself as the latest in a long line of Labour leaders who've used power to affect positive change in the country. And Gabriel, just generally in terms of their preparedness, in terms of their policies now and the experience that their key figures are trying to get, do you think they're as ready as Labour was when Tony Blair came to power? You know, have all these years in, in the wilderness helped them to hone their policies and work out their agenda? One of the facts of Tony Blair's victory in 1997 was that he was almost the last person to believe it was real. Alistair Campbell's chronicled this in his diaries, that Starm is trying to channel a similar mentality of, you know, we've got to be ready, but that doesn't mean that we're acting as though it's a foregone conclusion. He will be circumscribed by events from a very early stage. Maybe on some level that gives him and his shadow cabinet focus. I'd say that makes him quite similar to Blair. I mean, there are obviously analogies and, and disanalogies, but the fact of a Conservative government that has blown its economic credibility and been in government for many, many years is a kind of inescapable parallel between the two. So I'm not sure I have the gusto or clarity of mind to tell you whether Starmer's is more or less ready than Blair was, but to students of both eras, there are definitely a lot of parallels. That's so interesting. And just finally, Gabriel, we've mentioned that we don't expect that there'll be an election for another two years. But <laughs> Keir Starmer has certainly been calling for one over the last week. We've seen newspaper editorials calling for one. There are petitions going around that show there is a general clamour for one. Is there any world in which there is an election sooner 
So on one hand, the worse Tories do, the less uh, a lot of Tory MPs want an election. It might be that they despise what's going on and hate the leadership of the party, but that results in them clinging to them ever closer um, when they think that there's a kind of electoral drubbing imminent. And then there's also this fact that, you know, on the other hand, there are some people that think, well, maybe we do need to recharge our batteries in opposition and perhaps we ought to let Labour inherit the economy at its absolute nadir rather than taking even more bullets for, you know, the damage to people's mortgages and cost of living now only to let Labour inherit the economy on the up. But all of that is quite academic because we just don't know what's coming next. I think the world in which we see Conservative MPs voting for general elections is one in which the party is faring even worse, cruising even more listlessly towards defeat than they were under trust, which will, I think we could all agree, take some doing. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, The Sunday Times Whitehall editor, Gabriel Pogrand. You can find all of Gabriel's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producers were Constance Kampfner and Sam Chantarasak. The executive producer today was James Shield, and sound design was by James McGee. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with episode three of The Feud. Do listen in. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.